I'm your host, Shar Adams, and this is COVID University, New York. COVID University, New York aims to uplift the voices of communities hit hardest by the COVID-19 pandemic and to preserve the stories of these vulnerable groups in a historical record. When the world talks about this life-changing time and the generations to come, COVID University will serve as an archive and a way to remember the experiences of people whose stories won't make headlines. COVID University focuses exclusively on New York, once the American epicenter of the pandemic, specifically looking at the lives of individuals and families within the public university system, the City University of New York, which has over 250,000 students, staff, and faculty at 25 campuses across the five boroughs, hailing from every walk of life. Several communities have pre-existing vulnerabilities whether due to racism and ableism or poverty, COVID University New York gives special focus to them all. COVID-19 is now the second deadliest pandemic in U.S. history after the 20th century Spanish flu. More than 145,000 people in the country have died due to the illness. In New York alone, coronavirus has taken more than 32,000 lives. This death toll has shattered people's sense of safety. Mourners have had to say goodbye to their fathers, daughters, sons, siblings, and more in funerals over Zoom. Some families can't even afford to bury their loved ones or pay for an obituary. The grief is overwhelming. These thousands of deaths have been traumatic for the nation, leading to feelings of grief, shock, disbelief, and denial. And what's worse, there's no end in sight. Death is no doubt a part of life, but surrounded by fear, anxiety, and illness, dealing with loss is even more challenging right now. CUNY's Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism is working with the Columbia Journalism School and The City, an independent nonprofit newsroom, to memorialize the thousands of New Yorkers who have died. The massive project is called Missing Them. Missing Them is a database with more than 1,000 memorials for people who have died. That number is constantly growing and the team plans to honor every last life lost. At the website, the public can simply type in the name of a loved one to read their stories. People are also invited to reach out to the team if they'd like to honor someone they've lost due to COVID-19. My name is Michaela Roman. I'm a master's student at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. And I'm currently an engagement intern with the city.nyc. And I'm, I'm helping with the Missing Them project. We know that obituaries have traditionally been expensive, which means oftentimes they skew male, white, and wealthier across New York, leaving out people of color, immigrants, and those who don't have money for them. Knowing this, the creators of this project really wanted to do something that could both serve as a free space to remember lives, but also celebrate them. And now between the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism and Columbia Journalism, we have a bunch of students working on this project. I'm getting a master's in social journalism, which is essentially community engagement. So we think of ways local news can better serve communities. One of the directors of the project was a professor of mine. And he had mentioned the project in, in one of our virtual classes around March or April. 
And when he brought up the idea of creating a virtual memorial where we, where we remember every New Yorker lost to coronavirus, it definitely seemed ambitious and hard to picture, and it's still ambitious. But now we have a team that's actually working on it, and, and I'm part of that. My name is Luca Powell, and I'm also a master's student at the Newmark School of Journalism going on our, our last semesters along with Michaela. And I work on the uh, obituary and reporting side of the project. So on the phones, talking to people who had loved ones passed away and understanding a bit about how it happened and, and really getting a sense of um, what the story was there. Like Michaela said, really emphasizing the life that was lived. And I think the best way to describe why I'm, I'm doing this is because it really felt like a response to the moment. Um, and I think journalism is, you know, needed at this time to to help educate everybody and really dive into what happened over the past six months. I mean, we've had a deluge of news and all this has been lost in terms of obituaries and uh, of understanding and recognizing and remembering the people that have passed away. So it feels like at the right time to be, to be doing that work. You know, I wish we could say it was really easy and everybody's jumping to help put this public project together, but it's actually pretty tricky. Uh, you know, we have a hard time even finding the names of lots of people that have passed away, um, let alone getting in touch with funeral home directors who are still overwhelmed by uh, the amount of work they've had to do. It, a lot of it is community leaders helping us. Uh, a lot of it is us trawling through, you know, uh, unions, um, the web, of course, Facebook groups, and really uh, doing outreach in any way we can. So it's tricky and a lot of these are also in communities that, where people don't necessarily speak English as first language. So uh, we're, and we're not necessarily embedded in those communities and we have to uh, make connections and sort of bridge reporting gaps that, you know, we should be as a community working to fix anyway. But uh, in this moment, especially, you know, we're trying to remember people. It's, it's, it shows how little we are sort of connected in it's been great to speak to community leaders who have their their finger on the pulse, really, of where the losses have been uh, the deepest and most significant. Um, one great example we had was a doctor in the Bangladeshi community who actually uh, worked with us and gave us a list of almost 200 Bangladeshi folks that had passed away. It was really significant. Um, that's a huge number, and the community got hit really hard. Um, so I, I don't have anyone in my life personally who has passed away um, due to COVID, but, you know, we we definitely understand how hard it is to lose someone so close in your life. And I think a lot of the times we're just seeing these bigger numbers across the country and in cities and, and looking at charts and, and statistics and, you know, forgetting the individual lives that, that have been lost. And so to be a part of this project, I mean, it's important that we do that and, and really think of people as, as individuals. It's really intense. Uh, I think that, you know, when I'm doing these phone calls and I think also some of the other people that are working on this project would say the same, it's, uh, it's hard not to tear up a little bit and just kind of feel the weight of what somebody's telling you because, you know, a good, a good, I think a good phone call like this, you, you do get into some of the, you know, beautiful things about someone's life and, and uh, you can just feel how much that person misses those things as they describe them to you. When we write these stories, we are ideally giving something back and uh, they're short, but I take a lot of pride and I think other people doing the project do as well, doing them right. 
we always try to think about this project as a celebration of life, not just a page of obituaries. This is a way for families to share these very personal stories and also for New Yorkers to feel a connection to what's really going on with the people we've lost. Um, and, you know, I don't think we'll ever get everybody, but everyone's on the same mission to get as far as we can and, you know, showcase as many stories as we can. Um, right now, if you go onto our database, you'll see that we have a lot of names that we don't have the stories behind. And we want to keep those up. That way, if somebody comes across it and did know that person through the database, they're able to click on there and and share what they knew about that person. And, you know, we, we wanted to just really be this collaborative of space where not only are we just telling you what we've learned about this people, but for also to people to be able to come in and share their connections to those to those people in there. Even though maybe none of us expected that this is what our summer would look like, I think that we're going to look back and, and be glad that we did something that was an effort to tell these stories and to really um, memorialize this time. I know a lot of folks who are feeling a little bit existentially sort of out of place because their work sort of doesn't really relate to this in incredible moment that we're in where, you know, the world seems like it's upside down. And uh, I think it's important to try and find some way to, as I mentioned this earlier, but just kind of respond and be in sync with what's going on and do your part. Yeah, and I, I think with, you know, journalism all together, you kind of have to be ready for really anything, especially as reporters, especially as young reporters, you're kind of just thrown into whatever's going on in the world. And that can be, scary it can be exciting but I think that you know being able to to practice that right now when it feels like the world is falling apart is you know actually what we expected to be doing with our lives and really putting into practice what we've been learning in in the last you know nine months or so of our program so um I, I still very I still feel very fortunate to have this kind of opportunity to do that We'll be right back after these messages. If you're a fan of this show, you might also want to check out our sister series, The Big Shut-In. Long-form conversations with all kinds of people, real people all around the country, to find out the variety of what they're dealing with and how they're coping during the coronavirus crisis. It's unscripted and intimate, and really gives you a view into people's lives as they navigate a truly difficult time. You can find The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com and wherever you get podcasts. I think people should take a second to flip through a couple of the stories and, and just feel uh, some of the impact that's been had in the city. Uh, it's never going to be the same, and for so many reasons, not just the fact that people have passed away, uh, but this is just one clear, clear way to see some of the loss that uh, that New York has faced. So uh, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a sad thing, but it, it is uh, it is something to notice and, and try to understand as we move forward and try to, you know, think about what, what CUNY, what New York is going to look like in 2021 and 2022. Here are a few samples of the obituaries collected and missing them. Antoinetta Florio lived on a farm in central Italy until she was eight. 
Her parents decided to move to New York City so their children could attend college in the United States. They settled in Astoria, Queens, on the same block as Florio's future husband, Carlo, and his family. Florio, who died April 7th, was the go-to person at Key Food on Dittmar's Boulevard, where she worked as a deli manager for more than 35 years, according to her daughter, Carla Florio. In her free time, she loved to cook large portions of authentic Italian food and maintained a garden outside her house that was filled with flowers and vegetables. Our family used to joke that any time you went to her house, you should bring sweatpants because she would cook for an army. She gives, 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 says Carla. She died April 7th at the age of 56. Maria Vargas Cardona came to New York from Colombia and started from rock bottom, working factories sewing clothes, her family said. Cardona, who died April 24th at New York Presbyterian Queens Hospital at the age of 62, became an entrepreneur opening two businesses in Queens. She was the life of the party and a mother, sister, and grandmother to four who was always willing to give to people who were in need. Her daughter says she lived here for 30 plus years and refused to ever leave the city because she was so thankful for everything it gave to her. Before moving to the United States from China in the late 1960s, Pik Chi Chan had sailed around the world, working as a bosun on a ship in order to make money to support his family. After deciding life at sea wasn't for him, Chan moved to the United States and opened a Chinese restaurant with his wife in Harlem in 1973. According to his family, he lived in the kitchen. Food was a love language for him. Chan dedicated most of his time to running his restaurant, making sure he would be able to continue to provide for his family and support his children. When he retired in 2004, he sold the restaurant and often spent time playing poker with his friends and spending time with his grandchildren. He was like the captain of a ship seeing him in charge of his restaurant. It was like his kingdom, says Loretta Chan, his daughter. Chan died June 7th at Flushing Hospital Medical Center at the age of 82. Luke James Workoff was a 33-year-old newlywed who had a sense of adventure that bordered on the reckless, his family said. He loved fast cars, exotic travel, good food, and had a relentless passion that led to a career for several finance firms, ultimately landing at Mizuho, where he was a vice president. Workoff, who died on April 4th, grew up in Park Slope and lived in Brooklyn for most of his life. He survived by his wife, Tulsi Patel, his parents, sister, brother-in-laws, and his two beloved Pomeranians, Sammy and Perry. His mother, Marianne McKenzie, said, His relentless passion and care was for his family and his wide array of friends. Most of all, Luke loved people. His adventures are too numerous to mention. As a child growing up in the Bronx, Joel Lawrence Shatsky saw the Eugene O'Neill play The Iceman Cometh and immediately knew he wanted to be a part of the theater. Shatsky became a prolific playwright, poet, novelist, and essayist, as well as a professor of English at SUNY Cortland, where he taught drama for nearly four decades. His final play, A Day in the Life, Parkinson's, inspired by his years-long battle with the disease, was performed at the Flux Factory Festival in Queens in June of 2019. He survived by his wife, two children, and two grandchildren. Joel Shatsky died April 3rd at the age of 76. Etta Bush was born in South Carolina and came to New York City in the 1960s by way of Philadelphia. She settled in Bushwick, where she lived for more than 40 years. Bush worked as a social worker for the city government in Brooklyn, where she helped New Yorkers find work, apply for food stamps, and housing. She had a loving spirit and cared deeply about her work, said her godson, Nathaniel Jones. 
Bush was also a member of Calvary Fellowship AME and Bedford-Stuyvesant. She died on April 14th at Brooklyn Gardens Nursing Home at the age of 97. Her godson said, she was the spirit of the place. She brought a lot to that job, not just to her coworkers, but to her clients. Willis Cephas Washington Jr., known to his friends as Mark, was a bold, unapologetic artist and hairstylist, his family said, with a boisterous laugh and a fabulous fashion sense. After moving from Washington, D.C. to Manhattan in 1994, his talents landed him a job doing hair for ABC's The View and earned him five Daytime Emmy Awards. Washington, who died on March 30th, dreamed of retiring upstate to focus on painting. His friend Stephen McKinley described him as a blazing, vivacious, full-of-life force of nature. I can still hardly believe that he's gone. Washington was 57. David Rivera Jr. was a young man full of life who loved basketball and music, according to his family. He was from the Bronx and died on April 26th at Jacoby Hospital at the age of 23. This is COVID University New York, and I'm your host, Shar Adams. Our producer is David Hoffman, executive producer Peter Christian Eigner. This show is a co-production of the Gotham Center for New York City History and Race Car Radio. Contact us at COVIDUniversity at racecarradio.com.